From coast to coast, women grow up with their bodies being watched and, almost without fail, learning to watch their own bodies. This self-surveillance begins young and for many women feels impossible to stop. It permeates our relationships and decisions, negatively impacts our physical well-being, mental health, and overall quality of life. The Body Myth Podcast explores how we got here, why our size and shape have nothing to do with happiness, and what we can do to find body peace. I'm Ronit Plank, and I'm your host for the Body Myth Podcast. Let's get off of this weight and body image roller coaster together. Hi, welcome to episode eight of The Body Myth. Back in January 2022, when I was just beginning to create this podcast, my husband sent me an opinion piece from the New York Times entitled, Diet Culture is Unhealthy, It's Also Immoral, by Dr. Kate Mann. I appreciated so much about this piece, and I saved it thinking that it would be a dream come true if Dr. Mann could be my guest on The Body Myth. In addition to the essays she writes and teaching, she's the author of the books Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women, and is currently at work on a book about fat phobia. I reached out to Dr. Mann and was able to interview her, and I am thrilled to bring you this conversation. Dr. Mann and I spoke about misogyny and body image and culture, her early experience in an almost all-boys school and how that shaped her, and what she is currently working on. Please enjoy this episode of The Body Myth featuring Dr. Kate Mann. Today, my guest is Kate Mann. She is an associate professor at the Sage School of Philosophy at Cornell University. Her research is primarily in moral, feminist, and social philosophy. She is the author of two books, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, Oxford University Press, 2017, and entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women, Crown Penguin, 2020. Mann is currently working on a book on fat phobia and regularly writes opinion pieces, essays, and reviews in venues including the New York Times, the Boston Review, Politico, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. Welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the invitation. Oh, I'm so excited that you're here. I have to say that my husband sent me your essay in the New York Times in January, and it was at the beginning of the new year, and it was the first time that I read your work. And this this essay was entitled, Diet Culture is Unhealthy, It's Also Immoral. And I just am so happy I found your work. You, you have so much to offer in everything that you're doing. And to dive in, I just wanted to ask you when you first began thinking about your body in a critical way that you can remember. Hmm. Yeah, good question. And and thank you, by the way, that means a lot. So I think my first memory of being made to feel critical of my body, and it was this sense of being pulled sharply out of myself and having my focus turned on myself critically, was when I was in a PE class, and I must have been 10, I think. And a boy in the class just remarked, apropos of absolutely nothing, fat little Caitlin. 
which by the way isn't my full name my full name is Kate he just used oh. the diminutive to kind of further diminish me ironically that almost paradoxical word little and that diminutive with the word fat and I just felt yeah my focus having been previously trained on whatever it was the ball my classmates probably the horizon knowing my proclivity for daydreaming <laughs> was, <laughs> was just suddenly my body was all I could look at when it came mm -hmm. to that scene um, and of course I felt thoroughly humiliated and ashamed I just wanted to disappear in that moment mm -hmm. and after that I mean that is getting a little bit closer to the middle school years but still pretty young how how did things go on for you after that did you have any kind of awareness of your body or your size in relation to your family as being different or out of the norm did you did your family talk about size and shape or dieting at all so I think my family was very supportive and I think I was encouraged to be active and, you know, it wasn't really a, a main focus uh, during my childhood. It was actually more when I attended an old boys school, which uh, happened when I turned 16. So this had been an all boys school that just opened up to three girls. Okay, um, I thought that you said when I attended an all boys school and I was I like, did. okay, don't interrupt, just wait for the story. Okay, so this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the the whole idea of it was that um, this was a, it was the kind of brother school to my co-ed school. So there was an institutional affiliation, but it was going to a whole different campus um, where there were hundreds uh, of boys and just three girls so mm. it was the year the school integrated it mm. did then become co-ed but those first few years it was for all intents and purposes uh, a boys school mm -hmm. um, so it was a very difficult transition and I would say it was at that point that comments on my body became really prevalent and really destructive uh, so that mm. was the kind of big turning point in my story from being not terribly self-conscious. There was the odd comment, um, like the one that that boy had made when I was 10, that remained vivid in my mind even at this point. And, you know, I'm 39 now, so, you know, it's been a long time. But it was really that moment of stepping into an all-boys school and becoming, yeah, kind of an object for mm -hmm. public consumption and critique mm -hmm. that, yeah, was the, the really big trigger for a set of body shame and anxieties that have kind of dogged me pretty much ever since. So interesting. Did you do you recall talking about it with the other the other women who were at the school with you? No, it was very interesting actually how much that male culture and that misogyny that was very much in the air really disrupted female solidarity. So although there were kind of tenuous friendships between the three girls, you might presume that we were all very close and talked about the trauma mm -hmm, of it all, mm -hmm. but we really didn't. It was very much, for my own part, I think I was pretty frozen. I mm. was, uh, that's my reaction to stress is, you know, rather than flee or fight I'm or fawn, I'm very much a freeze person. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was pretty frozen for those two years. I mean, of course, there were good parts and bad parts, you know, like anything, but most of it was less than ideal for sure. Right. And, I kept and that pretty secret. Right. I was just going to ask you did you bring it to any mentors or to a parent at all or a sibling? 
No, I still regret that. I mean, had my parents known, I'm sure they would have pulled me out of the school and figured out other possibilities, other arrangements. But as it was, I just somehow just stuck with it for those two years without really disclosing to anyone how bad it was, mm. um, which was kind of an interesting effect of the the shaming. I think it made me very reluctant to speak out, feel very isolated, even mm. when I did have supportive adults around me who would have helped me had I said anything. To me, it speaks to that idea that it kind of became internalized and mm-hmm. you turned inward because you know, it sounds like you really felt like there was a problem with you and your body, right? Absolutely. And I felt like there were many problems mm-hmm. with me. So part of my work, you know, generously mentioned in opening has been on misogyny. And there were just so many aspects of misogyny that I didn't connect up until years and years later. So, you know, there was the intellectual derogation, there was the aesthetic derogation, the derogation of my body. And there was also the moral derogation, you know, people insinuating that I was morally depraved in some way, be that labeling me a quote unquote slut. Um, Mm. You know, it was a kind of series of incidents that might appear disconnected if you didn't have, in my case, I didn't have a word misogyny that was ready to hand to label Mm -hmm. these problems with. I mean, of course, I, I knew the word, I was a pretty precocious teen, so it was in my vocabulary technically but it wasn't salient or ready to hand, as Mm. might put it, for diagnosing what I was going through. So it seemed like a series of, you know, negative incidents, even some traumatic incidents, but I didn't really connect them as being the result of being on boys' turf as a girl. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, I think it's likely that that's primarily what it was, this series of as I now think of them, down girl moves that involved being derided in so many ways. Yeah. And do you think that the seed was planted back then for the work you do now? Or do you think you would have found this work anyway? Oh, absolutely. It was planted then. I'm sure I wouldn't have turned to it were it not for the desire to make sense of those early experiences that were unfortunately so formative. And also a sense that they were very, very hard to talk about and remain so still, that there was almost a guilt in bringing Mm -hmm. them up that I Mm -hmm. view as kind of linked to this sense that, as I sometimes think about it, the the first rule of misogyny is you don't talk about misogyny. You're (laughs) not meant to draw kind of moral attention to your own predicament. You're meant as a woman, and I think this applies also to many non-binary folks, you're meant to be always giving care, love, and generosity outward and being a source of moral repair in the world rather than a source of moral complaint or drawing attention to yourself in a way that connotes blame for dominant social actors like the predominantly white boys that I went to school school with who often did behave badly um, towards me and the other girls. Yes, and it sounds like you did not have a lot of allies. Is that Is that true? It's absolutely true that the teachers at that school would have thought of themselves as benign, but often either turned the proverbial blind eye to what was going on or were positively uh, allies towards the boys who Mm -hmm. were behaving poorly. Like just one little example of that. I remember I won the school's piano competition immediately before going to this new campus and attending this all boys campus. 
And that female teacher chose a recording of my um, performance to dissect really viciously in music mm. class with all of her male students, ultimately wow. c concluding that I shouldn't have won. You know, that's just one example of um, a teacher who, yeah, suddenly wasn't on my side or even trying to be professional, I think, or mm -hmm. neutral with respect to, you know, very basic values of pedagogy and not, you know, fostering uh, rancor between students. Uh, mm -hmm. It was very odd behavior, but, um, but it happened. So then how did you break away from that? And, and by the way, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Australia, as listeners might be able to tell from my weird hybrid accent. It's very Americanized <laughs> no, no, no. now. <laughs> no, it's funny because my husband is really good at accents, um, mm -hmm. and so is my daughter, my older kid. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I had a hunch, but I was, I was just curious because it's a good, it's a good frame of context too to figure out, like, you know, what might cross over in terms of the academic life and what might be very different for us mm -hmm. here in the States. And did you go to university in Australia? Yeah, I did. I attended the University of Melbourne. So I grew mm -hmm. up maybe an hour outside of Melbourne, uh, roughly in terms of a car trip, you know, in kind of a very pretty part of the countryside outside of Melbourne with lots of kangaroos and other um, mm -hmm lovely Australian fauna. And yeah, the school was closer to inner city Melbourne. And I went to university at the University of Melbourne, which is, uh, again, close to the city of Melbourne, just just immediately outside of it. Mm -hmm. And it so, was only yeah, yeah for grad school, I moved to the States. Ah, okay. And you've been here since? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. Yeah. And so the work that you do, uh, I, I was really struck by what you'd written in this essay. And it's also interesting to me, and I'm trying to figure out how I best want to unpack this, because in your book entitled, I'm going to quote, you write, I want my daughter to know that she is entitled to use and enjoy her body in a huge variety of ways to play sports, to play music, to dance, to stun. Is it stun or was it stun? Stim. Stim which mm -hmm. I don't even know what that means. I have to figure oh, that out. It's a term predominantly from the autism community. And I mean, I'm neurotypical. Mm -hmm. um, I have no evidence that my daughter is anything but neurotypical at this point. But um, stimming behavior is uh, often frowned upon. It's, as far as I am aware, a kind of self-soothing behavior that's ah, often... Ah, yes, now I understand, yes. Mm -hmm, ...derogated when... Um, when either autistic people or other neurodivergent people engage in it. Um, so, you know, it was a, a way of acknowledging that, uh, you know, at that point I was writing while she was pregnant and I wanted to acknowledge she might very well be non-neurotypical and as someone in that community, her body wouldn't be policed with respect to disability either. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm glad that we, I'm glad that I got that clarified. So after to stim, to express joy or grief or fear or sheer silliness, I want her to know that she is entitled to eat heartily, to take up space, to be loud and to enjoy the kind of lack of body self-consciousness I can only dream of. Mm -hmm. And so you wrote entitled prior to the essay that came out in the New York Times, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. So in this essay, and, and I'm juxtaposing these two because this essay that I'm going to read from now is about the struggle you'd had more recently or continuously with your body. So this is the quote. My relationship with my body is, to put it mildly, fraught. I have not always, but I have usually been fat. I have always hated that fact, although I have tried not to. 
I have been a so-called normal weight by the standards of the draconian body mass index guidelines only when I have been starving myself or eating a highly restrictive and often downright odd diet. Over the past year, I have lost nearly 50 pounds, prompted by a vague sense of obligation to shrink myself back down to size. As usual, the weight came off only with efforts so extreme that I hesitate to admit to them. Over the course of a month last winter, I didn't eat for 17 out of 30 days. Mm. So I want to talk about this because the book that in the book entitled in that passage I read, you write about what you wish for your daughter and how you want her to eat heartily. And then in the more recent piece, you talk about how you've deprived yourself. So Mm -hmm. I want to know a little bit about how your relationship to deprivation and to your body has evolved or changed since the writing of Entitled and since having your daughter? Mm. Well, I mean, I think my desires for her are exactly the same. I mean, I'm so determined that she not live the way that I've long lived, which is feeling ashamed of my body, feeling that my body is just too big, um, feeling that it should be much smaller, feeling that it's not somehow feminine and dainty enough. And also feeling like uh, deprivation, like that act of depriving myself is some kind of virtue. Mm -hmm. So it's, I guess, one of those classic cases of even knowing all the things I know and even believing all the things I believe, it's remarkably hard to reverse a lifetime's worth of internalized fat phobia and put into practice that theory that, yeah, it was really only more recently that I felt her growing consciousness of what I eat and felt a responsibility to stop dieting and frankly starving myself for Mm. the sake of a, of a somewhat thinner body. And that's exactly what I was curious about because I, so I see you as this philosopher and this feminist Mm. and you're so well-spoken and you've done the work in, in this area and you write about it and you have these books and you have another one in the works. And I'm, I'm fascinated slash worried because Mm -hmm. I feel that and also I understand because I'm in the same place except for being as educated um, as you (laughs) but I feel like here you are this woman who knows all these things and who writes with such conviction about them and yet you are struggling with what so many women struggle with and so I have these big like this big question mark like why right Mm -hmm. I mean I know why but like why and how do we get out of it if we can't necessarily intellectually get ourselves out of it Mm, no it's a really difficult question I mean I think it can be done but it has required for me a kind of very painful recognition that there are real costs in the world real material social political costs to being a certain size And I should say in writing this piece and in speaking about these topics publicly, I do feel it's important for me to speak out because I'm someone who has all the theory. I mean, I've been immersed, in fact, in the feminist fatosphere for the last 20 years. I've been aware of concepts like fat activism and health at every size and intuitive eating and so on for a really long time. And I've sincerely believed in in many of these concepts, although Of course, I also have uh, criticisms of particular ways the movements have been instantiated. But what I would say is that what has made a difference for me very lately is thinking more concretely about how the world is simply not made to fit fatter bodies, even bodies like mine that, 
you know, really I've been at most a small fat and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still kind of identify as fat, but, you know, I wear a, a US size 8 to 10. That's not going to count as fat according to some people's definitions at all. Um, you know, I'm in straight sizes and, you know, I'm someone whose body is, is pretty uh, outwardly unremarkable at this point. But what I have tried to be real about with myself is the fact that I am going to be subject to what I think of as three unexpected strands of fat phobia in as much as I'm not thinner. That is Mm -hmm. epistemic derogation, derogating my mind, which maybe hurts the most of all, aesthetic come sexual derogation, which, you know, will be something which, you know, gets me a lot of mean comments and trolling on Twitter if, say, my photos are ever published or um, put out there. And also moral derogation, that I'm somehow irresponsible or lazy or lax for not controlling my diet even more than I do. Mm-hmm. And these criticisms, I think they point to ways in which the world is actually, you know, it's not a matter of having greater self-esteem or loving your body more. It's a matter of recognizing that politically we need massive interventions. We need structural changes and a kind of transformation of a world that is currently cutting fat bodies down to size Mm -hmm. rather than embracing us as part of human diversity. Mm -hmm. So being kind of as clear as I could be that this is not entirely irrational. I am giving something up in giving up dieting, but what I'm giving up are rewards and lack of punishment by a perverse and kind of frankly fascist body system that I deeply don't endorse and in fact actively disvalue. And mm-hmm. so reflecting on that I think has helped me to to finally kind of do what I can do to stop personally participating in pernicious aspects of diet culture by looking at how fat phobia is at the heart of it and how fat phobia is wrong. Mm-hmm. But do you think that prior to working on it in this more earnest way or mindful way or however you want to put it, you thought that you could both shrink your body or attempt to shrink your body and hold on to these values? Or do you think that they are, they are mutually exclusive? I think they're mutually exclusive. And I think I've long thought that. But often these are the forms of cognitive dissonance and, frankly, self-contradiction I think many of us live with. So it would still feel to me obligatory to be very careful about what I ate or even restrict in, you know, frankly, dangerous ways, even though if you'd asked me, should my friend do it, should my neighbor do it, should my student do it, should my daughter do it, my answer would be a horrified no. Mm-hmm. But still, for myself, it's been hard to to implement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I wonder, too, uh, aside from the misogyny that you experienced in school, did you also grow up conscious of wanting to look like the Western ideal? In addition to the anger and the hate and that misogyny that was coming mm. your way just because you were female, when do you think you also picked up or added that whole Western ideal or the thin, slim ideal? Well, it was certainly obvious to me that I encountered more body criticism when I was fatter during periods in school and that some of that criticism would fall away when I was thinner. And mm-hmm. for my body, for my body type, 
um, you know, I am someone who needs to eat very little, almost nothing in order to see the scales move. You know, there's often this magical thinking about the body that if someone just, you know, eats a healthy diet or moves their body, their body will magically conform to that, uh, you know, very Eurocentric, very problematic, very white centric and frankly racist ideal. Mm. You know, my, my body is, is never going to conform to that ideal. Yes. And, and, and this is the idea of the diet culture kind of trap as well. And, and here's from your essay, too, in the New York Times. If the chances of long-term weight loss and the supposed benefits and pleasures that conveys are vanishingly small, then why do we keep doing it? I suspect the answer is not only habit and a false sense of obligation, but also the lure of aspiration. A dieter's perpetual sense of getting somewhere, getting smaller, and thus becoming more acceptable, more reasonable as a body. And I think, I think, I mean, I understand that really well. I think a lot of people do, men and women. This idea that we will be that much better or that much more who we're supposed to be if our bodies shrink. And I think yeah. it takes a really mm -hmm. long time to reform that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's also somewhat linked with my profession, which as a philosopher is kind of dominated by lean white men. Mm -hmm. And sometimes one can feel, or I feel, I should speak for myself, very out of place in the world of philosophy in a fat feminine coated woman's body it feels i feel yeah misplaced wrong somehow mm -hmm. in the body that i have and i think that's not uncommon sentiment but it's somewhat, somewhat limited by the fact that uh, there are just very few fat philosophers particularly fat female philosophers uh, as you know more than more than one person has commented on. Uh, I have a couple of links in my essay uh, about this. Yes, and actually that leads directly into the, the last quote I want to share from it, which is, the standard example of the much-studied phenomenon of acrasia, weakness of the will, is succumbing to a cookie. The natural human appetite for rich and sugary foods is thereby derided as not only contrary to reason, but also something to be tamed, shunned, even shamed. The constant deprivation and sometimes sheer hunger of someone who sticks to a rigorous diet is envisaged as an unambiguously good thing and is an achievement, even a virtue. And I feel like this is where that philosopher ideal of maybe a lean white in control type of guy is mm -hmm. coming out right there totally and i mean it's all the more ironic because these same lean white male philosophers will tell you look pleasure is morally good and pain is morally bad and you know we might not subscribe to a totalizing theory called utilitarianism that says that pleasure is the only good and should be maximized across all members of the moral community and pain should be minimized for the same. But nevertheless, there's something true or something at least promising about that theory. If something is purely painful and doesn't get you anywhere, as we've seen time after time again, dieting doesn't actually get people to a thinner body in the long run. Um, regardless of whether or not one believes that's a worthwhile ideal, as I don't. But even if one did, dieting wouldn't be the way to get there. There really is no known way scientifically to make fatter people thinner at the moment, barring drastic measures like, and very painful measures like bariatric surgery and diet pills like amphetamines. So, yes. you know. And when you say it that way, I mean, mm -hmm. it seems so clear 
why should they have to be, right? I mean, when you say it that way, why should we be trying to jam a body into a different shape, right? It's just like against nature. I mean, our bodies are just meant to be different sizes from one another. And accepting that rather than trying to violently cut people's bodies down to a certain size when, yeah, um, you know, as I said, I'm just a small fat woman. Um, but even as a small fat, my body is never going to be the, I think, 101 pounds that I would be ideally according to the BMI charts. That would be the lowest quote unquote normal weight. I can't imagine being 101 pounds. It, it just wouldn't happen short of just absolute starvation. Yes. I mean, there's no quality of life there. And there's also that distinction, and I'm not the first to make it, which is one might be able to get to a a target weight, but keeping it off, in my opinion, and and maintaining a healthy weight and being able to live and have a good quality of life is the real test about whether or not something is actually livable. Like it's not- Absolutely. Right? Like, I mean, if it's not livable- then it's not, it shouldn't be attainable. <laughs> like it's, it's it not, it shouldn't be, be in the realm. Right. It mm-hmm. shouldn't be attained. And I think this idea, and I think this comes in a little bit into the fat phobia part of our conversation, which I'm really fascinated by. And also historically, the context for bodies that are bigger or don't conform. This idea that control and appetite and being able to restrict yourself is some moral high ground or mm-hmm. some, it speaks to, a level of quality in a person or intellect or, you know, impressiveness has been around for how long, as far as you can tell? So I think it dates from roughly the 17th century. So it's actually quite a recent historical prejudice. I mean, Mm. certainly people cared much earlier about being abstemiousness. Um, Temperance is, of course, an ancient Greek virtue. It was a virtue for Aristotle. But they didn't really care, at least according to the scholarship I've been reading, about people's body size and shape. Possibly, and this is speculative because of a lack of nutritional knowledge about how exactly the various, you know, how consumption was linked with body size, with health. All of this has been, you know, very much unknown. And I want to say until recently, but actually it's largely still unknown. We don't know very much about how to nourish ourselves best. Or one of the few things we do know is that there's a wide range of nutrients and foods people can consume in terms of different diets all over the world and do well uh, as a result of that. But anyway, I think it was roughly in the 17th century that this prejudice began about men, actually, rather than women. There was a kind of trend amongst thinkers, you know, as influential as uh, the kind of founding father of French philosophy, uh, of modern French philosophy, Descartes, linked um, this kind of abstemious and thin man with being an intellectual. And then it was in the really mid-18th century, according to sociologist Sabrina Strings, that female bodies began to come under scrutiny. And uh, fat female bodies were derogated, interestingly, because of racist pressures to differentiate between black and white female bodies with Hmm. the burgeoning of the transatlantic slave trade. Is that right? I I didn't know that. mm -hmm. So Professor Strings argues that this is a really Anglo-American prejudice Mm -hmm. that came about because there was pressure to establish a hierarchy between white and black women's bodies with white women at the top, uh, Mm -hmm. unsurprisingly. 
<laughs> and this led to various myths about black female bodies being bigger that were kind of stoked by spectacles like the notorious uh, Hot and Tut Venus um, in the early 19th century. Uh, this was a woman who hailed from uh, South Africa, but who was displayed in London and Paris. Uh, her name is Sarah Bartman, and she was put on display as uh, an enslaved woman and person. And uh, the supposed fatness of her body led to this enriching of various myths about black female fatness that very much nurtured a kind of burgeoning, misogynistic, racist fat phobia that Strings argues uh, was beginning to develop was, you know, really took its fullest form, if you will, in the 20th century. So this is a very recent mm -hmm. historical prejudice compared to something like misogyny that is as old as the patriarchy itself, which mm -hmm. is in turn as old as agriculture. Mm. This is fascinating to me, and it, it's entrenched. It's so entrenched and rooted mm -hmm. even in those hundreds of years, several hundreds of years. Uh, is, this, is this part of what your book is going to concern itself with, your new book? Well, I'm certainly drawing uh, prominently on strings as fascinating research. I mean, I'm not a historian. I'm a philosopher. So what mm -hmm. I do is I kind of take these historical perspectives and then try to think about what they mean for us in terms of what fat phobia is today. Mm -hmm. And part of what I'm trying to argue is that it's not really about health in the end. Uh, it's not a misplaced but sincere concern with people's health that is motivating mm -hmm. fat phobia. You know, if fat phobes really cared about people's health, then they would be much more concerned with contributing to a stigmatizing discourse, which we know fat stigma negatively affects fat people's health in mm -hmm. enormous ways. So what I'm interested in untangling are the contemporary strands of fat phobia that are moral, aesthetic, and intellectual. How people are deemed to be morally wanting, lax and lazy, no matter how much willpower and discipline and, you know, moral generosity we actually display. In fact, fat people are morally derogated, they're derogated in a very ruthless aesthetic come sexual marketplace, despite the fact that, again, in point of fact, we see that there's a lot of attraction to fat bodies. If uh, at least common searches on pornography websites are any indication, there's not a lack of sexual attraction there. Mm. There's simultaneously a kind of attraction and revulsion that mm. needs unpacking and resistance. And finally, there's this layer of it, which is intellectually derogating the minds housed within fatter bodies, which, you know, has hit me very hard as someone who cares about being taken seriously as a public mm. intellectual and as a philosopher and writer. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to kind of show that um, it's not so much that we quote unquote discovered that fatness is unhealthy and therefore think it's immoral. It's more that we decided it was immoral and hence uh, deemed it unhealthy. Mm. Wow, that is powerful. Thanks. It's, uh, yeah, it's wow. So in terms of yourself and, you know, in our final few minutes, I want to just ask, how, how are you helping yourself these days? What do you tell yourself, you know, when you have days or moments where everything you know about the culture and the stigma, the, the logic doesn't really get in there and you're in your body and you're in the world. How do you help yourself? You know, 
all of it does sort of get in there. Um, when you really unpack these strands of fat phobia in the way that I've been doing, and, you know, maybe this is just a kind of case where working through it personally makes it hit home more, but really seeing the layers of this and the way that this has been, you know, a matter of health concerns being weaponized against fat people rather than actually driving this, you know, supposed concern with an obesity epidemic. To be really clear about the fact that, um, you know, presenting in the world as a woman who is fat, albeit now a small fat, after some weight loss that I frankly regret, to know that I'm actually doing something that I think is a small contribution by publicly presenting as an intellectual. So I do think it has helped me to reflect on these different strands in fat phobia and to think, you know, I think I'm doing something that is... Um, you know, a small but meaningful contribution to be being out there as an intellectual um, and as someone who does have a public voice, you know, which isn't inconsistent with being a fat woman in the world. Mm-hmm. So would you say that when, you know, this article that you wrote for the Times is not that old, it's a couple of months old. Mm-hmm. So have you evolved even since that in terms of your thinking about, you know, starving or not allowing yourself to eat? Oh, yeah. Well, you see, these things um, can take a while to publish. I, I guess I wrote that like <laughs> yeah. last uh, fall, I suppose, early last fall. And so by the time it came out, you know, I had really done a lot of hard work that had helped me move on from some of those really pernicious ways of thinking and, and those ways of habitual acting that don't necessarily reflect ways of thinking, but can be difficult habits to break. Um, mm-hmm. dieting is an interesting practice because it requires a lot of willpower not to eat and yet it can also require willpower to overcome so mm-hmm. it's an exercise in applying willpower to not exercising your willpower and actually eating with more self-permission more pleasure and just less self-consciousness mm-hmm. yes I've been there I am there I understand it so what do you tell your daughter what do you think as she gets older what what piece of advice or what would you tell your daughter if she started to worry about her body in the world I would tell her that the world is the problem her body is not and that if anyone makes mean comments if anyone implies that her size or shape should be different they are wrong and that we celebrate the fact that people in the world look differently from each other, that people's bodies change immensely and enormously over time, that those are all good things and that nourishing yourself comes first. Even if you have a moment where, you know, you we all have moments where we wish our bodies looked a different way, but we prioritize our health in the sense of making sure we get enough to eat and that we're enjoying our meals and that we're getting pleasure from our meals. And that, you know, if she hears about her peers, uh, you know, going on diets or trying to shrink themselves, to just be really careful and really critical of those practices. Because while they're very understandable, while there are big cultural reasons why people go in for them, unfortunately, people do themselves a great deal of psychological, emotional and physical harm by restricting what they eat. So I would tell her to dig in both to eat up and to resist on that basis. Mm. And, and Kate, where can people find your work? Where is the best place for listeners to connect with you? 
Um, so I can be found on Twitter, uh, for better or worse, often for worse, <laughs> at uh, Kate underscore man, M-A-N-N-E. Um, and yeah, if readers want to see or read any more of my writing, uh, you can also find it via my website, which is katemann.net. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for being my guest. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into The Body Myth. If you'd like updates, want to complete the Your Body in the World survey, or have a body image anecdote you'd like me to read on air, please visit the link in the show notes or find the link in my Instagram profile at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so that others can more easily find The Body Myth. Thank you so much for being here. 